Hello, this is Christy Bates of Oxford, Mississippi. Welcome to this episode of the Deep South Dharma podcast. Later, we're going to hear a Dharma talk called Tending the Heart, which reminds us that while the path of enlightenment makes wise use of intellect, enlightenment is an experience of heart. After the talk is a simple chant you can use in going about your daily activities or in times of stress or to help you settle into meditation practice. I first wanted to give some time to remind you that now is when you want to make your plans to attend a retreat at Heartwood Refuge and Retreat Center with me and my daughter, Erin Ray. Sometime soon, I'll catch her when she has a breather between gigs to talk to us a bit here on the podcast but I don't want December to sneak up on you, and I don't want it to fill up on you. I want to go ahead too and give you a sense for what this retreat will be like. We'll be at Hartwood in Hendersonville, North Carolina from Thursday evening, December 5th to Sunday morning, December 8th. So you'll need to set aside a long weekend. It is really important to begin with us at the Thursday evening session so you'll feel oriented and connected right from the start. I want to let you know that although we'll have some periods of silence, mainly just periods where we give each other space to practice or work without interruption, this is not a silent meditation retreat, even though we will practice meditation at times. I suppose it's more of a workshop with a retreat feel, if that makes sense. The theme of the retreat is training the heart, lifting your voice. And I hope you'll find that it allows you to release some self-consciousness and offer your gifts or voice in whatever subjects you feel called to do so. Erin and I did a short retreat on this subject and it was so well received, I've always wanted to expand it. If you're not already familiar with Erin, chances are you have some music-loving friends who are. If you Google Erin Ray, E-R-I-N, Ray, R-A-E, you'll soon be an expert. For the retreat, if your gifts are in some form of art, then bring your instruments or implements, whatever those may be. If your gifts are in some other form or area of life, bring your journal or laptop or tablet, whatever you might need during the working period. We plan to provide and train you in some supports you can use to allow your gifts to move up through you, move freely into the world. December will be here before you know it. So go to the retreat calendar at heartwoodrefuge.org for details and go ahead and register if you can. We appreciate your practice and the way its effects reach into the world around us. We also appreciate your participation with Deep South Dharma by downloading and listening to this podcast. We want to remind you that you have an open invitation to participate with us in any of our groups and retreats. Check the updates to DeepSouthDharma.org for the info on those. For now, enjoy Tending the Heart. Yeah, really glad everybody is here this evening. 
Um, so the title that um, I chose for this evening was uh, called Tending the Heart. Um, I did that in response to a couple of things that just that I ran across or that occurred during the week. But um, one of the things is to uh, respond par partly to some ideas that sometimes people can have about mindfulness practice being about sort of just observing, right? And um, partly what, uh, in our practice tonight, we utilize the steps that the Buddha goes through in the Satipatthana Sutta, where he goes through these steps of, you know, first settling in, just first, but even just finding your body, becoming aware of the breath, becoming aware of tension in the body and allowing that to calm, becoming aware. But, um, but it's, and yes, there's the observation about the breath, but that's not where it stops. The Buddha goes on further to, um, to this sort of deliberate uh, attitude of de developing sort of a sense of care, interest, loving kindness toward our experience. And um, now the sort of pop culture ideas of mindfulness being about only observing, um, it, where there's a piece of truth in that is that it, when we are kind of coming into contact with what's going on, we do at first want to have a sense of like, okay, let's just observe first. Like, ha, like it's a way of sort of putting the brakes on our reactivity. Or just sort of, um, not that sometimes we have a whole lot of control over our reactivity, sometimes we're just observing that also, but to recognize that um, just like I said during the practice, just like when we're sitting across from a friend and they're bringing up something um, and we have a charge around it, it's really, if we're trying to be a good friend and a good listener, very often we'll sort of deliberately not say the first thing that comes into mind or not jump in, but we'll sort of just, just wait and see what happens, wait and make sure we understand what's being said, wait to see are we being asked for our input, you know, all these kinds of things that we learn to do as part of listening to another person um, and, then, and then deciding how to respond, deciding what's the appropriate response. Um, and so when we talk about tending the heart, part of it is, is that, that we kind of develop that attitude toward ourselves, um, that, that and, and this isn't obviously only during meditation, although meditation is definitely when we, we can see, we get sort of that up close look at what's going on habitually in our minds, and there's that tendency to be reactive to it. So we we may notice that we worry a lot, or we may, we may notice how easily distracted we are and all of that, and it's really valuable to, instead of being reactive to that and trying to start fighting that, is just noticing, oh, this is the mind I'm working with today. <laughs> you know, and, um, and, some, and noticing that the mind I'm working with today may be different from how it was yesterday or even earlier today or how it'll be tomorrow, so we don't need to be, um, you know, latching on to sort of permanent criticisms of, of ourselves and our state of mind or anything like that, but just noticing like, okay, here's, here's what I'm working with right now. Um, and, and then to, to have that, uh, you know, in the seven factors of awakening, the, 
that begins with the first factor being mindfulness, the second factor being inquiry or investigation, sort of this attitude of like, can I just be interested even in what's going on, right? And so like one of the things that I notice when like in, in the work that I do in counseling people, you know, it's like, I know I, that I see people grow when they start to, when they start to come in and they say, I did this, this, blah, blah, what is that about, right? Instead, I mean, and they, even if there's a little tone to it, just the, just the sense of like they're beginning to question, right? Or um, instead of coming in complaining about themselves or fussing about themselves of how they should or shouldn't be doing something. But, but starting to kind of have that thing of like, well, look at that. Here's this thing that I want to be doing, and I can't seem to, I haven't been able to make myself do that thing this week, whatever it was. Or, you know, and of course, I mean, that's not everything that people are bringing in, but just that, the way that people talk about themselves, um, whether it's in meditation groups or, I'm pointing my offices over there. So, you know, in, in counseling or, you know, other situations, Hearing people change how they talk about themselves, where it's a less reactive uh, sense of like um, finding fault with oneself and being critical, uh, but more curiosity. And as we get into this um, business of really sort of tending the heart, uh, some of us that were together last year. Um, for a retreat, we really talked about really coming to tend and befriend and sometimes even reparent these parts of ourselves that maybe at first we had just a reflexive attachment to or dislike for or, um, or feel embarrassed by. And, you know, whatever our thoughts or feelings or habits or, or habitual responses tend to be, those are really worth getting to know, um, partly for the value that they have uh, had, had before, and very often the things that we don't like in our thoughts, feelings, experiences, habits, very often the things that we don't like about ourselves right now are things that have been awfully helpful to us uh, pre previous to now. And so we can kind of recognize, oh yeah, that part of me, it's still trying, it's, it's, it's still trying to solve a problem for me. It's doing it in a very outdated way. You know, it's, it's actually what's happening is not matching the situation now, but instead of being frustrated or disliking or unkind to that part of ourselves, we can appreciate, wow, there's that part of me that really wants to like protect myself, you know. Um, there was a lady talking about this, talking about it this week. I was a little personally miffed by this, but she talked about people met right that that people have parts of themselves that go immediately into medicating, and she listed words with friends as a medicator, which I did not appreciate, but because I because <laughs> I like my words with friends uh, game, uh, but you know whatever it is that people, whether it's scrolling endlessly or uh, always like to tell myself that, you know, playing board games is a step above just scrolling, you know, that's how I rationalize that time spent. But, um, but recognizing that, you know, we can have some of the things that we do that we dislike, maybe things that are sort of 
that we may really have, have uh, big attachments to them and big, big problems with them. And they may be socially unacceptable things, you know, drinking, drug use, that kind of thing, if, if, if that is a problem medicator for us. But then there can be things that are sort of more socially acceptable, right? And um, when we start to find that, okay, here's, here's something that's happening that I'm not really, <coughs> I'm not, I don't want to be doing this, or I'm not crazy about this, or I feel, actually, I feel fine with this. I feel a little defensive about this, in fact, if somebody says something about it. You know, what, what's going on with that? What, and so just being able to just sort of watch things and, um, and with an eye not toward sort of extinguishing anything, but seeing what's there and responding to it. Um, so much of the many, many practices that the Buddha taught had to do with kind of understanding what things are and just sort of put, it's almost like when you go in and uh, Shenzhen Young has this really nice analogy. It's like if you go in and you have a desk that's just covered up, that the first thing you start doing is sort of categorizing things. Like, okay, well, here's all the things on my desk that have to do with, you know, taxes. And here's all the things on my desk that have to do with the kids' school. And here's the, you know, and so, like before you can really even get any clear space on the desk or know what you want to do, first you sort of start categorizing things. And this actually can be uh, a helpful when we're looking at how we're feeling internally, and particularly if how we're feeling internally is accompanied with a mind that feels very jumbled or feels um, feels very uh, um, overreactive. It's really help. That's where it's just really helpful to to do those simple things of noting things like, okay, well, there's some reactiveness here. There's some avoidance going on. There's just some, there's, you know, here's a whole pile of things I don't really want to look at. So I'm just going to set them right here. Um, you know, here's, here's my feelings about this or that relationship. And we, we're not, but we're not doing this to turn it into something that doesn't matter. And, you know, one of the kind of the um, public misconceptions about Buddhism is that it's all about detachment. Right, that it's all about um, and or non-attachment, and the yes, in the sense that attachment is something that's you know when we t talk about attachment being something that's got its hooks in us and is pulling us under, Buddhism is about that. <laughs> it is about getting getting unhooked and not being pulled under by things, but it's not about not caring. In fact, it's the opposite. And so often there's things that that, that we feel hooked by that we keep wanting to pull away from in our emotional life, in our, in our thoughts, in our, and that actually if we can care about it and move toward it, it's actually a little easier to get that hook out than if we're pulling against it all the time. So, um, so that, that just seemed to me to be something worth bringing up just because um, you know, just as we were talking last week, you know, there's lots of different schools of Buddhism, right? And you can sort of run across these articles about Buddhism says this or Buddhism is about that. It's like, well, which of the 
dozens of schools of Buddhism are you talking about? And you know, uh, and do you even know what you're talking about? You know, and and so um, so just having that recognition that, but one of the that that the Buddha was looking for freedom, which is it. It's not. That is an as much an emotional experience as it is a mental experience. That sense of um, there's a song lyric that I ran across today that I just love that said something about um, you do as you please, but you're certainly not free. And um, and you know, and that the Buddha's part of the Buddha's life story was very much the person that could do as he pleased and felt and felt enslaved by everything. Right, and so. Part of what he was looking for was that sense of freedom, which is, um, which is an emotional experience, which means it's a bodily experience. When we feel that sense of release, of like, okay, yeah, now I can deal. You know, that is a, that's not just a mental thing. That is actually a physical experience. The mental clarity arises from that, actually, that sense of like, okay, I've got a little space. Um, and, but not only the Buddha, but even like in our, our tradition, the, the sort of uh, the Theravadan tradition, sort of the old Pali Canon um, based teachers, you know, all of those um, law, you know, decades and decades long practitioners, all the Ajans, and uh, they, when it comes right down to it, they talk about enlightenment being a a matter of the heart, right? It's not, it's enlightenment isn't about sort of knowing something special intellectually. It is, it is this experience of, of heart, this experience of, um, I ran across a Thich Nhat Hanh uh, reading, or I'm rereading this old book of his called The Miracle of Mindfulness. And uh, he said, you know, it's not as if this, you know, we can have this misunderstanding about what the self is, right? And he said it's like people have this idea that it's like we're in a tube, like we're going through our lives and like we're in a tube that's like surrounded by this thick, uh, almost like a, um, like the walls of a tunnel or something. And we're, so, you know, we're just going through life, zooming through this tube all by ourselves, but actually that's not true. The the, that our, so when he talks a lot about interconnectedness, but which is the word he prefers to emptiness, right? Because emptiness has so many misunderstandings attached to it. But interconnectedness, having that recognition of, um, you know, I don't exist without the trees giving oxygen, and they don't exist without me giving carbon dioxide, and all of that, that sort of thing, we start to realize we're not just in this tube sort of shooting through. Um, and I just thought that was, a sort of delightful um, picture. I mean, it was so, um, there was a lot of clarity in that for me because I thought, yeah, that is what it feels like. It feels like going through, and as I've said so many times in here, just that feeling that we can have of I'm here by myself behind my eyes, you know, and everybody else out here is sort of not me, doesn't have anything to do with me, and so I'm all alone and nothing. Uh, uh, sort of, and 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 part of what um, part of the enlightenment that we seek as we are practicing and attempting to wake up, 
we're not we're not trying to wake up to some intellectual experience. We're trying to wake up into, we may know intellectually that we are interconnected. What we are trying to, by enlightenment, what we mean is to be able to actually feel that, to, to really have an experience of interconnectedness. And that's why so much of, um, so much of the Buddha's emphasis was there was the meditation emphasis, but then also the emphasis of sangha, the emphasis of, of living together in harmony, of, of uh, I mean, being careful to choose who you're trying to harmonize with, right? That you're trying to harmonize with people that are also attempting to wake up, but, um, but that um, because that in that setting, that sense of fellowship among people that are sort of trying to wake up together, that's where we get that chance to really experience, oh, I'm not all by myself in this. Um, and even though we can read beautiful things and know that intellectually to really have a lived experience of it, um, we really do have to you know, be around other people. The, the statement that you know, we, uh, some of us had, um, and I certainly, I knew him less well, way less well than lots of people here who used to come to our group some. Um, but somebody was saying that he used to do this sort of joke, not joke, about, you know, I can't, I can't won't live poor. Can't live poor. No. And that, which is heartbreaking to, to listen to when you think that guy was surrounded by plenty of people that would have never let him go without. You know? Um, and so that and just that, that we can have these thoughts and ideas and feelings about how things have to be because we feel so essentially alone. Um, it's really, it's really, um, it's really striking, really striking to me. The, um, the other aspect of tending our hearts um, is that then we become a much more, <laughs> um, Effective and loving tender, <laughs> T-E-N, not T-I-N-D-E-R, but tender of other people's hearts, right? When, um, when we come into contact with somebody who is safe inside themselves, we feel safe with them. You know, somebody who, when we think about, we may have friends and loved ones that we absolutely know what a wonderful person they are, but if they are the person that's going around beating up on themselves all the time, we often can't feel very safe around them. Um, because there's sort of that thing of like, well, geez, if you're criticizing yourself for that, what do you think of me? You know, there's that sense of, <laughs> and so when we come into contact with somebody who really sort of has this attitude of, you know, exploring how they feel and being sort of, you know, they may be working on some things that they want to transform, but there's an overall sense of they're working on themselves because they want to be happier. Not, they're not working on themselves because they think they're bad. They're working on themselves because they want to be happier. It just it makes it feel safe to be around them when they are safe toward themselves. Um, and so this is one, just one of those things that is helpful to remind ourselves that even though in the middle of practice, the sort of conditioned cultural mind can tell us, well, this is sort of, you know, navel gazing, or it's sort of somehow kind of self-indulgent or selfish. The fact is, is we really do the world a favor 
if we will sort of develop a loving, caring relationship to all the parts of ourselves, you know. And believe me, I mean, I, as much as anybody knows, some parts of ourselves should not be set loose on the population. I'm not saying all the parts of ourselves get to do what they want. <laughs> what I'm saying is that we have a much better chance of helping to heal those parts of ourselves that might be harmful if we can develop a, um, a loving relationship, um, a caring relationship. And we may not feel um, fond of all parts of ourselves, although one of the things that we can know is that as we start observing and trying to come to understand what is that, that part of myself that I find so difficult, what is it trying to accomplish? When we start to realize what it's trying to accomplish, all of a sudden, we, we, dis, we may not be super fond of it yet, but we all of a sudden dislike it a lot less when we realize that it is really trying to do something, that it's not trying to do a bad thing. Um, and so, so but, but us sort of developing um, a working, healing relationship to all the parts of ourselves, all the parts of our hearts, being willing to um, kind of face some of those dark corners of our own hearts, it, it really is good for, you know, not only people in our immediate vicinity, but just the kind of for the ripple effects of, of how we impact others, other beings. I started to say other people, but not, obviously not just people, other beings um, in general. So um, I think what I want to do is um, save the chanting until, I want us to have a chance for y'all to um, have some discussion about anything uh, percolating for you right now. And, um, and then uh, we'll do the, the chanting um, of the four divine abodes. Um, and uh, like I said, that one, that, that's a very user-friendly chant. So that's one of the things I like about it, but yeah. thank you. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be happy. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be well. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be happy. May all be filled with loving kindness. May we be well. May we be peaceful and at ease. May we be happy.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Deep South Dharma Podcast. We hope you'll feel welcome to share this with anyone you think would find it useful. And as always, feel free to message us your feedback, questions, or topics of interest. Until we meet again, take good care of this body, mind, and heart.